How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 101. There you go. Just 99 left, Zeke. Another milestone. Yeah, yeah. Back there you go. We're back, back to, to counting. Square one. <laughs> nah, we should be proud that we've done the 100 and now we're just continuing. We're continuing yeah. on with the show. Yeah, obviously it was our monumental 100th episode last week. It came with a uh, attire. We wore our very special shirts mm, for the show. We did. Um, which feature on... The feature on your social media, the feature on mine. I, I put it on. I'm pretty sure I would have put it on by now. Yes. So I'm guessing on like my Instagram and which stuff. Which was our commemorative episode 100 t-shirt, which featured our logo on the front and uh, on the back, the 100 episodes that we did. There we go. The titles of the films. Yeah. Or beautifully displayed. No, it's good. Well, it's been a, it's been a while because we pre-recorded that 100th episode, so it feels. So it feels like a month <laughs> since yeah. then, honestly. Well, you... it's only been a week and a half, but... Yeah, I know, but it, it's... I think we've both been up to, to no good, as they say. You went on a trip? I did. I went on a trip. Uh, my bank account is looking rough. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, yeah. It, was, um, it was a really good trip. Just a road trip around the southern regions of Western Australia, so... Yeah, it's a good time for it. Great time for it. I had yeah. a lot of fun. Come back rejuvenated. Ready to talk about some films? Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm with you there on the bank account because I finished my Christmas shopping and uh, we're both very poor men. Um, I should actually point out there was a screening of the film we're doing this week at Palace in the last week. And really? I, and I would have loved to have uh, gone with you to watch it in the cinema, especially because you haven't seen the film prior. But mm-hmm. we, I don't think either of us could afford it. No. So I I didn't bother. I was like, you're probably tired from the trip. Um, we're to- we're both too poor to watch this thing, so. It is what it is, but um, no, I'm glad, and uh, this is going to be a good Christmas week, I reckon, Zeke. Yeah, so I caught um, four, f- uh, five films, including the film of the week, mm. uh, when it comes to what's new in cinemas, but I've forgotten something. Mm. Uh, what, what have you forgotten, Zeke? Uh, we are now moving into a new decade of film quote guesses. That's right. So we've both had one round each mm-hmm. of roughly nine, ten-ish film quotes based on the year of which our episode podcast number resides. So episode 84, for example, we did a quote from 1984. Uh, so we've done a bunch of you, a bunch of me. I think we both ended up in the in the green, in the positive. Yes. I think so. Um, I think I was like six to five last week, so I was very close, and I'm pretty sure you were in the green too. But mm-hmm. we're back to you, Zeke. Yes. And uh, I have a quote for you from a 2001 film. I know you're a big fan of this film, and uh, yeah, it's going to be good. Are you ready for the quote, sir? Let's go for it. All right, here we go. I'm not going to do the voice, but uh, here we go. You're not supposed to name it. Once you name it, you start getting attached to it. Now put that thing back where it came from. Or so help me. (laughs) This is uh, the 2001 Pixar film, (laughs) Monsters, Inc. Ding, ding, ding. One one for zero. Congratulations, Zeke. That is indeed. And that might play into a film we might be talking about next week on the show. Absolutely going to be circled back later on. Yeah. But uh, congrats, Zeke. Quote number one done. Thank you. Good start. Good start. Go. So, yeah, back to what I was saying. I've caught five films this week, including the film of the week. Um, don't have much to say about... Uh, I watched Home Alone 3. Now, this is going to sound really <laughs> odd. Yeah, this is very odd. Um, I've never seen Home Alone or Home Alone 2. <laughs> and I was watching it with Sarah, and she's like, Home Alone 3 is my favourite of them. What? Yes, uh, that's true. And um, so we elected to watch Home Alone 3, which I thought was a perfectly fine film. 
but I, from what I... <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Um, I, from That's what not I even hear, the one with Trump in it. Like, <laughs> why? I'm looking forward to watching the other two probably in the next week, <laughs> um, just to gauge whether. Because mm. from what I hear, Home Alone actually ties in with the film that we're talking about later on this show. Some people say it's the kitty version of the same. That's funny concept. you say that. I guess we will get to that. Um, but yeah. So yeah. Uh, well, I will say, I actually did rewatch the original Home Alone this week. Not like I was like in and out of the room, but we had it playing on Disney Plus in the background. And yeah, it's a great film. Yeah, of course. Um, I also managed to catch um, two films today, uh, which I'll talk about uh, a little bit in a little bit. But the other <laughs> film I caught was an Australian film from 2002, Ooh. Cracker Jack. Which okay, is I saw a, this on your letterbox. A comedy based uh, Australian film. Uh, centered around Melbourne, uh, Melbourne bowling, which is the lawn bowls. Oh, um, that is okay. Interesting subject matter. It stars um, uh, Mick Malloy, who's a Victorian comedian mostly, um, and it was a perfectly uh, funny film. I found it quite entertaining, to be mm. honest. Um, Australia does have a knack for doing these really quirky comedies that seemingly are talking about absolutely nothing and are actually kind of wholesome, good fun films. So, oh, interesting. Um, definitely more in the, the vein of a castle than... Uh, so that definitely that kind of... Let's make fun of the Australian... Okay. Like the culture? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That uh, was a good film. Easy watch. Just been added to Netflix. Um, I'll throw it to you, buddy. What have oh, you yeah, sure. Okay, well, I I've had a really... Weird week and a half. I'll probably start with the uh, probably the most random in the set. So I watched the personal history of David Copperfield, okay. which I think was in cinemas at the very beginning of the year, just before COVID, I believe. And I want I wanted to catch it. I didn't really know much about it. It is uh, based on the 1850 novel from Charles Dickens. It's sort of semi autobiographical about his own life, but it is in the the vein of the character David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to say what I'm about to say next. Fully aware of knowing that there are many, many adaptations of this story and that the story is based on a 170-ish-year-old story book uh, or a novel, I should say, but um, I was tremendously bored by this film. Um, I actually probably... I think I gave it like two stars on the but which is pretty low. I don't usually... No, it you takes, don't normally dip. Yeah, it doesn't take me... It, does, it takes a lot, rather, for me to give it a score that low. And look, I thought it was a very colourful, very charming film. Uh, I, there was enough to like in it from that regard and there is a bit of an exploration of you know the free-spirited gifted child who's stuck in an, a victorian era society so mm-hmm. he's not really treated um with the way that he might be treated in today's society i thought that stuff was interesting to be explored but ultimately it was just one of those films like halfway through i just started like going through my email and doing stuff like i was mm-hmm. tremendously unengaged by what was happening and and i don't really know what it was because the story is a classic, the performances were fine. Yeah. Um. It just I I tried really hard to care for it. It reminded me of Harriet, which mm-hmm. I also watched earlier this year, where it's like it's a fine story, the subject matter. I just could not care for it whatsoever, and and very forgettable. I forgot about it almost immediately after watching, which is a weird thing. And the only reason I watched this film is because my mum got like a won some sort of competition thing from Roadshow. Right. So she actually got a code like to watch it digitally for like a week. So she oh. just passed me the code and I was like, oh, okay. So that's the reason I checked it out. Was pretty disappointed, but it is what it is. Uh, the other one 
<clears throat> I'll get into in terms of films. So I mentioned last week or the week before, 99 and 100 sort of blur together for me because mm-hmm. we've recorded them much closer in succession. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mentioned in one of those episodes that I was going to go to the Australian Rev Film Festival and I, I, there was so much happening that week, um, getting episode 100 together, um, especially because we had those the lovely voice memos mm-hmm. uh, in last week's episode. So doing that, and my computer was completely stuff, so I was trying to fix that and, and running favours for my friend Ian, who had some films launched, including this one. I only got to watch one film at the Rev Festival, uh, but luckily I was very happy with it. So it was called The Crossing, uh, and like I said, my friend Ian Hale uh, produced it very local film takes place in like the eastern hills i actually laugh because the very first shot i was like i drove on that road like today <laughs> which i thought was quite funny uh but it's essentially about uh these characters or these uh teen boys with the backdrop of this murder that has happened and the the gossip around town was like oh it's it's the 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 lonely uh, indigenous person in this sort of recluded building or uh, mm-hmm. his home, you know, it, it's sort of like their what's the word? That you know, it's always that sort of the town mysterioso guy. I know you haven't watched the first mm-hmm. Home Alone, but there is that character in that film, like the the outsider that all the kids are like, that's that's the guy who killed his wife, that kind of yeah character. Um, but it ends up focusing on a relationship that that one of the kids Chris has with uh with him Bobby, who's played by Kelton Pell who was actually at the premiere, so that was really cool. I got to meet him of the Heights fame, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, I really enjoyed their chemistry on the film. I thought they worked really well together. And the actual story about it, just in terms of the way it deals with racism and, and making amends for your mistakes and stuff, I thought the script really tied all those themes together with all these other characters and how the story sort of in across, which is ironic because it's mm-hmm. called The Crossing. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was really well done and surprisingly edgy in a way. In the sense that, you know, you you watch a lot of local films and you sort of, yeah, what well, you have a different lens to it watching mm. it because you're like, okay, well, I hope this is really good, and I'm this, and I was surprised by kind of how dark it got in places because I wasn't really expecting it. I was like, oh, interesting, that's really cool, uh, and I really thought the editing was great, which makes sense because actually got a best editing nom at the Paris Film Festival. Oh, so, okay, cool. Yeah, so I was glad to watch it and be like, oh, I totally get it. The editing is really great. Um, in terms of sequence editing and beat-to-beat editing, which is something we'll talk about in the film of the week. I would love to do. But, um, yeah, The Crossing, I really, really dug it. And uh, I think it will get a proper release schedule, mostly at Backlot Perth, in mm-hmm. January. So when that comes out proper, I'll remind everyone, and perhaps we'll do a special episode on it one week. No dramas. Well, uh, a couple of the other films I caught earlier today was mm. the latest from a... Uh, uh, Ryan Murphy. Um, this is uh, the recently released The Prom. So I'm going to watch this later this week. Okay. So I'm interested to see what you say now. Um, so Ryan Murphy has been... He's come up quite a few times, actually, probably in the last month or so. Mm. Um, he has also been direct... He was... I've mentioned him in my opinions on Hollywood, the miniseries yep. that came out earlier this year, which he directed and created. Uh, the Normal Heart, I talked about probably 10 or so episodes ago. Uh, Eat, Pray, Love. So he's, you know, he's directed quite a... F- these are all the things he's directed, and most of them have left me with either a seldom positive, uh, with the exception of Hollywood, I didn't enjoy at all. Right. Um, the Prom has quite uh, the lineup of people. It's got uh, stars uh, Meryl Streep and... Uh, Nicole, and then Nicole Kidman, Nicole Kidman, the James Corden um, guy, James Corden, who I can't um, stand, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, and they're all central parts. There's a quartet that are really the 
the the forced day and um this is obviously another one of his films that has been adapted from broadway to screen so okay broadway that makes sense. screen adaptation based off a 1971 book so oh well we're going back way back um which the ideology behind it it's sort of like the best way to encapsulate it is it's kind of like an lgbtq footloose Okay. Um, so it involves the banning of a prom due to a student wanting to take a girl to the prom rather than because um, she's an, an outspoken lesbian in this high school in this right, yeah. uh, regressive town in Indiana. Yeah, like conservative sort of school. Mm. and Yeah, gotcha. Um, so hence my footloose sort of allegory, which is the mm. whole banning of... It's a Christian town that's banning the use of drinking and alcohol and, and fun. <laughs> And the push is to have a dance in Footloose and whether this is the push to have a fully inclusive prom, Mm. Um, which there's definitely enough parallels there to encompass it. Um, Yeah. It's good enough. There's some really solid numbers in there. I find um, I'm not super... I found sometimes actually the cinematography quite dizzying. Okay. Um, Too many colours and... He's very bombastic with his colours. Yeah. Um, but it's also, he's constantly, he does, so there are some rules to editing, and this might actually come more into the editing side. It's often tough to go from a camera that's moving to a stationary camera. Hmm. Um, in the middle of a dialogue-driven scene, it can come off a little jarring sometimes. Like, so for example, there's a dolly out shot, and then it will cut to an insert that's not moving at all. And right. Dolly out, and it, Sometimes can come off. Uh, you can feel the edit cut points in it. No yeah, matter. it feels too jarring because there's motion and you sort of whip panning to no motion, and it gives you sort of a, an eye whiplash basically. Mm. Um, and sometimes he does that, and sometimes so when it's a musical number, <coughs> the camera constantly moving is actually a good thing yep. in a musical number because well, you're keeping the energy lively and all especially that. when it's very bombastic, classic Broadway mm. stuff, which this, this music predominantly is. Um, but normally that's then countered with like in, for example, La La Land, the scenes where they're not singing, the camera's relatively stationary. It's not mm. trying to do anything too bombastic. Because the bombastic comes in the numbers. Yeah, they're distinguishing the scenes as like just basic coverage and dialogue, and then when the musical numbers come in, that's when they they flourish more with the yeah, camera. Yeah, which movement. is like when you're watching a Broadway musical and there's not as much movement in a scene where peak characters are talking between song numbers mm. as there are when the big numbers are happening and the set pieces are changing, costumes are changing. And, the music's blaring, and it's very. This is a. This is not real. This is surreal. That's yeah. kind of the premise of musicals, and sometimes I find he he doesn't do that. And I watched this with with Sarah, and she was totally fine. She really enjoyed it, and she okay. really likes his direction. I'm not as sold on it. I don't think I've seen like anything he's done, but it, we talked about the look. I don't know if I like the look of his films. Because they are very bright and vibrant. Well, and, and he's got very... His turquoise and pinks are huge, and rainbows, obviously, right. um, a big big part. And it's interesting to read up on him because a lot of his things post-Eat, Pray, Love have been incredibly focused on the LGBTQ community. Like, it's very much what his focus is. It's yeah. the same... It's, it's his focus in Hollywood. It's his focus in Normal Heart. It's the focus in this... And 
I think what he is, I think when you read up on him, it's really interesting because he did eat, pray, love, which is the only one that's kind of absent from that thematic connection. And but that, that came point, first, didn't it? It did, and it also okay. came from a point I think when he wasn't out at that point. Right. So it's very much the apparatus of Hollywood that has kept him sort of uh, away from the stories. I think. Whereas now we're starting to break into. He also did quite a few episodes of Glee. Um, oh yeah, I think so, that was a big thing as well. So I, I definitely think this is the stuff he wants to make. This this stuff, mm. um, and I liked it well enough. Um, I liked the musical. It had some really, like I said, it had some really nifty numbers, <laughs> really solid, obviously, vocal performances, um, and had, yeah, had a really good intro. Um, okay. And I think it should, it might, I mean, obviously with Oscar season coming around, is this a film that we'd consider? It's not getting the best ratings on... Oh, interesting. Critically. I actually haven't um, been, like, following that at all. It's got good costumes. Right. It's probably... <laughs> Um, no, that's fair. Well, I know this was like one of the films, much like like Ammonite and stuff, which we talked about. That was going to, or, or even Hillbilly Elegy. These were films that people were like, it's going to be in the Oscars discussion. Completely forgot I watched be- Hillbilly Elegy. No, but that's the thing. It's like these are films people are like, oh, well, just look at the cast alone. These would be nominated for Oscars, and then they come out and they don't do very well, and they're off the table. And, and that's funny. It's like we only did Ammonite. We did Ammonite as a weekly episode. Um, yeah, we did a full and, discussion. And on. We she went made to the, a comment. Yeah. Sarah made a comment when we were watching. She's like, oh, well, that should have been what was an Ammonite. And I completely forgot I watched Ammonite <laughs> three, four weeks ago. <laughs> so she wanted Ammonite to be more like the prom. Well, it's just more like believable. Like we were talking about, we mm. talked about, I don't know if we okay. talked about on the episode, we had some problems with the the believability and the chemistry of the two. Oh, okay. I'm sure, we, I'm sure we did, but yeah. Um, and honestly, it was, uh, I think, one of the things I took away from it. It's really nice to see, A, a musical I've never heard of before be put to a screen adaptation. I really like that. I like um, uh, Broadway to screen adaptations. I've always liked them. Um, they don't always hit. Yeah. Actually, they predominantly miss, but when they hit, they and they hit, they hit well. So... Um, a cat's hit well for a very different reason last year. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> oh man. We should watch Honest, cats no, again. Honestly, if you look at uh, if you look at Broadway musical to screen adaptations history, I could probably name two films off the top of my head where it works, mm. and then the rest of them, it doesn't. So, um, you're talking about like short... proper adaptation, like not like Hamilton. It's like the that's Phantom adaptation. Yeah, okay. Like, okay. Yeah, like where it's completely cinematic. Yeah. So La La Land, great example, but it's not a... That's I don't original. Know that's I'm, original. I'm certain that's an I'm original, I'm pretty sure yeah. that's original, yeah. So, like, Phantom's screen adaptation sucks. Mm. Okay. Um, Les Mis is some people like it and some people don't like. Yeah. Uh, well, there's there's many of those now, isn't there? You're talking about, like, the 2012 one, Hugh Jackman and mm-hmm. stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the the first Tom Hooper film. <laughs> yeah. Tom the Hooper pre-cats. Comes, he's coming up a couple of times now, isn't he? Um, uh, so then you've watched one other thing, didn't you? I did. I just finished my big fat Greek wedding for the first time. Oh, interesting. Okay. I really enjoyed it. I really like films that are like cultural exploration films. Mm. And this film stars and was written by, uh, well, it's written by the, the star of the film, I'm pretty sure. And it just centers around her experience with, she's also Greek and just centers around uh, her, her marriage, like, and the cultural phenomenon of, Greek marriage and it's sort of like centered I think originally was definitely marketed more as like a comedy sort of oh look at mm. this very much the Cracker Jack sort of situation whereas look at how fun the Australian culture can be yeah at, 
but it definitely has significance to it and and it's very intriguing to but also makes you laugh at the same time mm, that's good that's so what I, you want yeah so i really enjoyed that film um, nice. yeah and that's what i've caught this week cool um before i move into this last thing that we can definitely both talk about i want to mention we did go ahead and see once uh at the back lot yesterday as part of the vault and this is true this was our golden chock top winner of 2019 it was too there you go our um, big winner um, little but, tease in three weeks from now, we'll have our second anniversary show. Yeah. Now, that was really fun. The only problem, and like we hate to put them on the blast because we do love the back lot very much. Uh, unfortunately, we were just so distracted because there were issues with the audio. Um, we, mm. would, we spent the whole time trying to figure out Well, what either was go happening. to our Once review or our opinions on Once from that uh, Golden Chock Top Awards. Mm. Um, and you can see how much we love the film's soundtrack. Yeah, and, well, that, that's a big part of it is the music and, and all of that. And um, this was, to be honest, was the worst mixed down audio mixed down I've ever witnessed in a in a cinema. Really? Yeah, it definitely. It's tricky because there was definitely an issue with it that prolonged the entire screening, and it was very distracting because we've seen the film so many times and we love that soundtrack. Uh, and I don't think the people behind us noticed. I was sort of listening in after the credits and they didn't seem to be talking about the audio. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great for them. It didn't seem to tarnish the experience. Hopefully not, but um, it was a shame. So, you know, we love going to the back lot. I mean, we've premiered, you know, our films there before and usually they have excellent, uh, but maybe for these vault screenings where they pull out an old film that isn't necessarily a DCP, uh, just, just be a heads up on that. It is obviously a cheaper price. Uh, we didn't spend anywhere near as much money as we would have spent on a diehard no. Screening at Palace, but, um, but fortunately, yeah, we had some real serious uh, peaking or noise gating issues with the audio tracks, where it would either at some points completely delete dialogue that was being spoken and mm. like phase it out through like a noise filter or, or peak bits that like boost bits audibly for yeah. no particular reason. And we we tried very hard as we were watching it, sort of figure out what dissecting was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I sort of, yeah, and obviously it was a real shame because it was sort of something that uh, we were quite looking forward to seeing. So, yeah, but mostly just putting this out as a warning if you want to watch these vault absolutely. screenings. At back we'll get lot. once on Blu-ray. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The Blu-ray track's wonderful. So, <laughs> yeah. but there you go. The last thing I want to talk about, so this is something, since we've had a bit of extra time between episode 100 and 101 in terms of us recording, not necessarily the release, I was like, I want to sit down and just watch a show. And I picked a really good time to start watching The Mandalorian. It's a very good time to start watching The Mandalorian. Yeah, so I've watched all of season one and two. You are halfway through the second season. I am. I sort of was goaded into continuing to watch it because I had finished the first season mm. when the first season came out. Really enjoyed it, loved it. Sort of forgot about it, to be honest. And yeah. then, obviously, with recent news with Disney basically saying for their Star Wars franchise they're going to be creating, I think it's 10 or 11 new shows off the Star Wars properties. Just, guys, just relax. Um, it's okay. <laughs> then they've, in turn, um, released this second season starting, I think, back in September, I think it was, and pushing all the way, and it's just wrapped up early December. Oh, well, no, it wasn't that long, because it's only been eight weeks. Really? Yeah. Oh, maybe it's only two months ago. Well, fair enough. Uh, October, maybe. maybe. Well, October 31st. That was the first episode. Yeah, sure. yeah. Well, for this season or last season? Last uh, Season two. Okay, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I think I, season one came at the start of the year. 
No, I think they were both around the October, November mm-hmm. set because I was looking this up. I like to keep track of like when I'm watching this stuff in terms of TV. Letterbox doesn't really mm-hmm. do TV, but um, I saw that they both came out around the end of each year. Um, but so, yeah, so I, find, I I sort of binged the two seasons together, and um, I thought it was pretty good. I think the first season uh, I thought was just fine. It was what it needed to be, which was an honest to god expansion of the universe of Star Wars that wasn't just, you know, Rogue One with a thousand cameos or Solo, which is still just, you know, in the Star Wars, all the recent trilogy, which, you know, for me personally, Episode Nine just completely destroyed the trilogy for me in terms of rewatching it. Um, so really, Disney hasn't put out a lot of stuff that I'm personally a big fan of. I know we just screened some of that, but uh, it was good to see that even though, yes, it's like, oh, well, you know, Baby Yoda's still, it's a Yoda creature sort of thing. But on the same token, it still felt like a very different story, and it really took its time before getting into stuff like the Force and the Jedi, which takes over a season before they even start saying those words, mm. which I was a big fan of. It really felt like the original, you know, 1977 Star Wars, where it's more of an ode to sort of the Western knights and the the Eastern samurai, and there's even scenes in season two that are very much just that. Um, which is just well, there have been yeah. multiple screenshots that I've seen to call back to Lucas's original um, mm. inspirations, which was a lot of the uh, the Japanese theater, yeah, yeah, and stuff like that. But um, it's really interesting because it's like this show has kind of really, definitely propelled the career of of Dave Filoni, who has been working with the Star Wars property since the Clone Wars film, yeah. which came out in two thousand and eight. So he's been with working on Star Wars property since 2008 um, uh, on his own personal sort of projects. And he was working under the guise of Lucas back then. Yep. And then over, obviously, with the, the Disney acquisition, they chose to bring him over and, and they kind of put the, the Star Wars Clone Wars animated show on hiatus because they didn't want to continue that and they wanted to have their own property, which is where Rebels came from. Um <laughs> And it's really interesting to see characters that were created in the Clone Wars animated show brought over to the Rebel show in their own cameo ways mm. and now come to life in this real-life adaptation. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's not just um, some of the more overt characters. It's some of the... the And not only that, I find it really interesting, multiple of those characters, their voice actors from the show are the ones who are playing their live-action counterparts. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so... Um, this is not really a huge spoiler. I don't if you're spo- talking about who I think you are, this isn't a spoiler. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to tell no, you. No, Rosa- Rosario Dawson, who's playing Ahsoka, which is the most... Uh, that one was very early marketed in Season 2's marketing. Yeah. But, I'm thinking about uh, the dude in the, the Season 2 premiere that apparently is a guy in a book. No, it's um, it's Bo-Katan, the other Mandalorian oh, chick. Okay. She is actually voiced by that person on the show. Oh, that's awesome. And then just gets a real... Yeah. I was super surprised. I watched that episode. That's the last episode I watched. Okay. I was like, who's that, that actress? And then I found out the actress was the voice actress because their voices were the exact same. And I was yeah, like, and you're like, that sounds so similar. So that's yeah. really cool that Filoni is not only giving these these actors their chance in a voice role, these complete unknowns. But they're giving them as much bigger role to play role. the same character. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's amazing that they're not getting eclipsed by larger names. Mm. Um, and then the only ones who are really the larger names that are like on that show are put in roles that are, they aren't already pre with the exception of Rosario Dawson, who wasn't the voice of Ahsoka Tano. 
on the show, but from what I hear, she did a really good job with it. So yeah, for sure. And I, I just the cast in general, like obviously you got Mando himself, but I'm thinking more like the 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 people that are given like little bit roles, like Amy Sedaris and and obviously Gene Carlo Esposito and our boy Bill Burr. You know, it's Nick like Nolte. Yeah, it's like you know, the, he's got this little voice cameo. You know, yeah, it's, no, it's dope. Well, even Taika. Taika Waititi. Yes, he does like, voice. That's right. I forgot because yeah, he wrecks... eighty eight drawing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, is that it? And Watching the guy the from episode, uh, yeah. IT Crowd. Um, he's a he's a droid too in it. Oh, okay, I haven't seen IT Crowd. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> there's actually quite a few like nifty cameos in it, but um. Obviously, I think, yeah, it's really good to see Filoni, who's getting a lot of praise from, like, the community, but also just mainstream push now that, oh, this guy is easily the one who has ruffled the least feathers in both the Star Wars, but is also generally appraised general viewers of the product, I think. Yeah. He's got that balance, whereas, obviously, people like Johnson got crucified by the Star Wars community, but then praised by the general community, and then, mm. you know, JJ had the whole, well, he's just a mini, mini Lucas, he wasn't doing anything special, so... Um, and especially his, I think his reputation is completely thrown out with episode nine. So in terms of, so it's really interesting to. Yeah. I, I feel like that's probably an unfair assessment though. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I, there's not a lot of Star Wars Disney films that I like, mm. but at the same token, like the Star Wars fan base seem to be especially volatile to people. So I just want to put that out there. I think, I think people are just, yeah. they want to hate well, everyone who works on a Star Wars I, film. I would I would say <laughs> Filoni has been consistently yeah. liked by the community and has not done stuff to please them. He's just done stuff that pleases them, I guess. It's probably right. the best way of describing like it. Like it doesn't feel too it ham-fisted feels like in a way. He's trying to take a step to make it more in depth and bring things that weren't in canon into canon where appropriate and create this depth of universe and actually really homage the artists and creative people who have created all this expanded universe stuff Mm. that's not originally deemed canon, but then when it's brought into a canon product, it becomes canonized. I think that's sort of, and that's where now we now have this 12 shows they're promising us. That just sounds exhausting. You know, like it took me a year just to bother watching this show. <laughs> I'm not sure how many of those will get off the ground. I think they said that Kenobi has just started filming or something. Or, right. Um, I know they're going to do a Boba Fett one. I watched the Kenobi show. I uh, watched that happily. They're going to do a Lando Calrissian one with Donald Glover. They'll do a. Yeah, they're doing all kinds of stuff. They're doing another animated one based off the Clone Wars stuff. They're doing one with the Bad Batch, which was in the last season of the the show, which that last season didn't get its green light until the Mandalorian success, really. Right. They brought the Clone Wars back in for that last season, which ties in with episode three. Yeah, you were telling me that. And I I probably will watch the Clone Wars at some point, considering, like, I do like the show. I thought... You know, there's things I can pick at it. It's not like high-class cinema. Mm. It's like a lot of day sex season, mockers I mean, and stuff. You but... talk about the second season being more serialised, and I can already agree with you on just the half season I've watched, but often first seasons of shows are more a collection of episodes that coincide within a very loosely based I mean, series the plot. kind of TV that these guys are homaging, yes, I agree. I think TV, because a lot of it now is like Netflix and stuff, they do serialise it from the very first second. But I kind of like that this show took a minute to feel more episodic and then get more serialized in season two. Well, the, yeah. the driving question season mm. one is just, 
It just reminds protect me of Baby Yoda. Yeah, well, it's just like things like Daredevil and stuff like that. We haven't seen Daredevil. Uh, well, a lot of those Marvel shows, because obviously if we're talking about these big collections, the the Marvel or the Netflix universe, I don't think they count any of those anymore or something. I think they like. kind of count. Well, it's like that, know. Punisher, Iron Fist, Jessica Jones or whatever. They all do the same thing. They all just try and establish the characters within that universe in the first season. Okay. And then um, in latter seasons, we'll then start to create serialised plots because you're like, well, you know these people now. You know their backstories. You know why they're here. Yeah. You know their relationships. Well, that that's why I'll yeah. give season two a thumbs up because I just I generally wanted to watch the next episode. I'll finish an episode and be like, I want to watch the next one now. I didn't really get that with season one because it is a bit more episodic adventure of the week type, which is fine. Um, it just doesn't Big appeal thing, to me it's as a, much. It's a, yeah, it's definitely a thing that they do in both the Clone Wars and Rebels, but cl- they what they do in that are actual episode arcs. So they do a collection of like four or five episodes that are all linked with yeah. each other, and then they'll move on to another oh, story. Oh, I see. That might be a bit <laughs> random throwaway, but the 2003 show, Ninja, the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Where it was like they would have like three, four part episodes, but then it would move on to the next. They don't arc. start doing those until the second season. Though the first season has a lot of very isolated episodes. Right, um, gotcha. I think there's a couple of two parters, but I definitely think that's a show that got uh, the best part is that those shows got to be darker the longer they went on because the audience they could argue the audience was maturing with them or basically they were just given more reins because the show got more and more positive and they just kept pushing the buttons right yeah but i do think mandalorian in all seriousness well, it relatively seriously it's a pretty dark yeah it's not a it's not it's on the spectrum of star wars films live action hmm. stuff i would say it's yeah it's probably not the the most violent but it's definitely not the the lightest hearted well it's very action riddled which like if i was a kid watching this show i would be eating it up you know oh it's Um, so entertaining yeah and i think because there's a lot of action and every now and then you're going to get like a beheading or something that does feel a little like whoa you you don't expect that in a star Mm. wars thing and it's like yeah i don't know so i I I kind of agree with you there it's impressive and i like how where it finds its ways to work around its budget and I definitely think the second season has a far higher budget than the first season did. Well, the first season apparently had a massive budget, like more than Game of Thrones. Really? Which I don't know if I believe, but that's what I've heard. No, because from what I've heard, they've actually had to pull a lot of resources. So, like, uh, the last episode in season one, uh, they had to actually ask, um, like, cosplayers from this. They're called the 501st oh, Division. Oh, I remember this, yeah. Uh, in order to fill out the extras did for the Did they Storm have Troopers. to or did they just want to? No, no, no they had to. Okay, they interesting. They couldn't afford to have, like, more costumes made, so they had to ask right. the people that had I already... guess that's towards the end of the season, though. It's a big... They, they, their budget... to, they have to create a battalion worth of soldiers, yeah, too, yeah. so it's like... Well, the thing is, is, I feel like they're given that set budget that they use throughout the season, so... It's likely well, that towards the end you start running out. Yeah, first episode of season two, you can clearly see, I feel like there's a jump in the budget. Yeah. Well, it's funny. that The only reason I knew that guy was from a book is because I looked up the aspect ratio changes at one point. When the big monster yeah. comes out, it, it subtly goes wider and turns into 16 by 9. Yeah. Which I didn't notice the first time. I was like, I whoa. Did. I did. I was, I was actually, I didn't notice it subtly. I just remember I was like snapped and I was like, it's changed to 16 by 9. This is the first time it's been 16 by 9. Well, your brain notices it. You're like, this feels bigger, more epic. And it looked great, like the actual visual yeah. of it, but 
it was when it went back to widescreen. I was like, wait a second. When did that happen? <laughs> it's a good show. I would recommend it. Uh, I honestly think it, for a lot of people, it's the only reason Disney Plus has any subscribers still. Yeah, um, no. When I was when I was working on work from home, I was shocked at how many people were like, oh, I can't wait to get home and watch Mando. I was like, are people really watching the show? Like, I know people are, but like, I was surprised. I think we've just people been are absent, generally excited about it. We've been absent a really good science fiction show. Like... Mm. Like you no said, and I think this is one of <laughs> season two. It's going to happen. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, but no, I actually I do think when you think about it, like you, um, like really think about how little we've had the opportunity to watch like good science fiction stuff, and you brought it up how little the Jedi get men- mentioned in both right. seasons. It's a bit more in season two. Yep. Well, Stop it naturally becomes more and more part of the story. What well, has to? Yeah. I mean, it, as soon as we found out the kid was force sensitive, it was like yeah, that's like okay. episode two though. Yeah, but like as the characters learn, but I that's like, what you mean. Uh, I, I, I yeah, I love how the characters don't know it. Like it's mm. and and we have characters that what is have heard magic? of them and don't really know of them that much because they're mythologized at this point. Like most people don't know <laughs> that. Luke was a Jedi. Right. Like, there would have been a whole sections of the galaxy that have no clue why the Empire fell and and all that. And I find that really interesting. They tackle that. I get a little annoyed when it's like... I was thinking this the other day. They It's this like the third time they go back to Tatooine. And I'm like, this place that's in the middle of nowhere... It's meant to be like a desert. It's meant to be this place that yeah. no one knows, no one goes to, and yet... Every single character seems to go to Tatooine. Yeah. Every single character. Nah, it's it's a that's a little ridiculous. And I thought the first the pilot episode was partly on Tatooine because there was like the Jawas and the thing, but yeah. that that was a different planet. No, it's just a different planet. Like there can be those aliens on different planets because they're just scavenger aliens. I know, but the, but then they start going to Tatooine they like four times. It's like and come I, on. And I and I yeah, I'm like, I guess we do have to go there because of the obviously the return of a certain character which i haven't got to that episode yet but i'm aware he comes back oh you uh, you're aware yeah I think okay it's that, well that has actually nothing to do with tatooine in the in the what actually happens mm. and i will say i kind of loki hated that i know if the internet is very excited but i actually really didn't like the ending he's of getting season a spin-off two. show too oh my god guys uh, calm down but it didn't I, look good i find <laughs> i find it's very very funny that, um, yeah, this 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 planet that was meant to hide this this new hope, and yet every single like in the prequels it makes sense it's motivated but other yeah. shows both Clone Wars Rebels and this show have all gone to Tatooine I'm like this place really doesn't feel like the middle of nowhere because yeah. we spend more time on here than we do on the city planets <laughs> where yeah exactly because I feel I when I watch this I'm like oh yeah Star Wars is gritty again. I'm like, well, it doesn't necessarily need to be gritty. There are, like, futuristic cities. They just never go there. <laughs> it reminds everyone of the prequels So it was actually really nice when they went to that, that planet with all of the sea creatures on it. I was like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah something was, new. Yeah. No, it looked cool. Yeah, it did. It was all rainy. I'm very anyway, excited to finish it. Yeah, like I said, I, I definitely was more impressed with season two because of the serial nature of it, and there was a more concrete driving question regarding Baby Yoda, but I hated that ending. Okay. And, like, you tell me what you think when you get to it, but... I'm um, sure I'll have your opinion by next week on the show. Part of it was just the way it looked. I was like, this looks really bad. Like, right. don't... My boy Peter Cushing is <laughs> just the start of this. 
Um, anyway, yeah, well, that's all I have to say in that, and I don't know about you, but it is Christmas time, so I, I doubt we have career updates on nope, either end. enjoying the time of doing absolutely nothing. Exactly. I think we've both earned it. Audience, don't yell at us. We're doing our best. You know what a career update is? Is this very episode. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. And then, I mean, it's time for us to move to our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week in the show, for Christmas, we're watching Die Hard. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. He's an easy guy to like. Come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. And a hard man to kill. Bruce Willis, Die Hard. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? NYPD cop John McClane's plan to reconcile with his estranged wife is thrown for a serious loop when minutes after he arrives at her office, the entire building is overtaken by a group of terrorists. Hmm. Merry Christmas, Jake. Merry Christmas. I now have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So... Let's settle a debate yes, straight off I, the bat. That here, is Jake. literally in my notes. Let's settle this right now. Let's <laughs> kick it off. Jake, Die Hard is a Christmas film. Yes, it is. It is. I'm so this is my first time ever watching this film, <laughs> mm. and I was well aware of this debate going into it. And literally, I think within the first fifteen minutes, I was like, "This is a Christmas film." <laughs> Where is the debate? I'm very right. confused where the debate is. Well, it's not very overtly Christmas. It's not like Elf, which is also John Favreau. I'm... Like it's not like about Christmas. But in my defense, because Christmas, the plot doesn't work without Christmas. That's why they're all there at the party. Is because it's a Christmas party. <laughs> well, there's multiple Christmas puns. I think the soundtrack is one of the biggest key sellers. I mm. mean, you have the the trailer stinger right there from last week on the show. It's yeah. a good way of just kind of poking the piss. But at the same time, there's a lot of music in this that is just either Christmas carols or remixes of Christmas carols mm. or people acknowledging the Christmas carols. There are characters that, like John McClane, played <laughs> by Bruce Willis, that are openly talking about Christmas. And he's like import- whistling Christmas music when he's walking into the building. Yeah. I don't... I really don't... I, I would be keen to see someone who's like, that's not a Christmas film. And somehow they try and convince me, apart from the fact that it's not trying to find the meaning of Christmas or right. Santa or it's physically doesn't involve present giving or anything like that. I, I feel like the kind of people who don't consider this a Christmas film are the people who don't see films that are more than one genre. Like, if you mm. ask someone, like, what genre is Parasite? And if they give you more than one answer... They're probably in that realm where they see this as a Christmas film. But not every Christmas because But that that kind of works, but it's like saying Home Alone would be a Christmas comedy... Mm. Christmas comedy caper film, really. Well, that's a good book because Home Alone isn't about Christmas either, if you're going to go to that extent. Because that plot only works for Christmas. They're all travelling. We're talking about the original Home Alone, of mm-hmm. course. But it's like... Which is also, like I said, an early part of the show is a film that is often... Compared to this film as mm. the kids' version. In fact, isn't that a direct... Um, doesn't he, the character directly acknowledge Die Hard in, in that film? Isn't in it? Home Alone. In Home Alone. I can't remember exactly. I, I, it reminds... I feel well, like Home he's Alone's inspired 19, by it. Home Alone is 1990, so it might be inspired by it. Yeah. It's two years after. I seem to recall him... I feel like there's a scene where he's watching films. 
Oh, he's definitely not watching Die Hard. It's a fake... I think it's a fake show in Home Alone that he's watching, or a fake movie, but... Mm. Um, I mean, I could see the parallels. That's why I'm glad you brought it up because uh, it is sort of like a kiddie diehard in a lot of ways. And again, like Home Alone isn't about Christmas, but people call it a Christmas movie. Why can't Die Hard be a Christmas movie? But I just think it's overtly a Christmas film, and that's the end of that discussion, really. <laughs> Fair enough. But films yeah. get, Christmas films can have guns and violence. <laughs> like, very, okay. very confusing. Well, Die Hard is directed by John uh, McTiernan. McTiernan? McTiernan. What else has he directed? Uh, he directed Predator with uh, Schwarzenegger, who was actually one of the people considered for the role. I'll get into that in a minute. Oh, glad um, it's not him. But And he also went to direct the third Die Hard film, which is strange that he didn't do the second one. So yeah. I feel like some people like the third Die Hard more than the... But did he go know. to do Predator 2? Maybe he just doesn't I like... I don't think so. Maybe he's just not married to sequels. Right. I took a look at his letterbox, and that was the one that spoke to me or that jumped at me. Uh, the film itself is based on a novel, Nothing Lasts Forever, from 1979, uh, which in itself was inspired by a film that I very much thought a lot about on my rewatch this morning, The Towering Inferno. Now, that's a film that I only saw in the last year. It's the first time I'm watching Die Hard since watching Towering Inferno. I was like, wow, these two films are like a perfect like back-to-back screening. Mm-hmm. Like They're very similar films. Uh, for different reasons. Anyway, so the film on a, I think you said, what, $28 million budget? Something like that? Yeah. Uh, made $140 million, roughly. So You much... wonder why there was a sequel. Well, that's it. I think that's why a lot of people talked about this film, was it just made a big splash, even though it is a bit, I don't want to say generic, but, it, you know, it is a very simply plotted action film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, I think it's the little things that make this film stand out. A lot of people consider this, like, the best action film of all time. Would you... Agree with that sentiment. Best? No. Mm. One of the best paced films? Mm. Yes. Best paced action films? Yes. Interesting, yeah. I think this film is a very tight film. There's no fat in it. It feels like every... You're very much glued to your seats in this film from Mm -hmm. start to finish, I think. There's always something that keeps you invested in it in watching it which i really like um but i wouldn't call this my favorite action film of all time no mm, that's fair enough i think i think for me personally that honest still goes to terminated 2 and i mean the first time i saw this film was last christmas and uh, i remember not thinking as highly about it i was a little surprised oh really yeah i i actually thought it was just very very long to go against what you were saying but on that that being said rewatching it this morning and I have seen a cool 270 films, roughly, since I last watched this film. And I think I did come on come on to appreciate the pacing way more this time around. I think you are right. There is really no fat mm-hmm. in this film. I think I just wasn't picking up on as much as I did this time around um, to appreciate the pace. And the actual script, I thought the script's actually really, really great. Oh, it's excellent. I think... Um... This film gets a lot of praise, including its 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 action tropes, and it also gets praise for having one of its one of the best action villains of all time mm. in Hans, Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman. Um, R.I.P. Yeah, but in all seriousness, it's well founded. It's probably one of the well founded praises of this film. He is excellent mm. from from start to finish. He's charismatic, calm, um, imposing, and dangerous. And and charismatic and also motivated. I think that's yeah. one of his one of his biggest strengths that 
for a long, a good duration of the film, people, although we know he's attempting to rob the building, people are associating <laughs> him as a terrorist. Yeah. And he doesn't mind being labelled that because it helps hide what he actually is intending to do because most people don't know yeah. his intentions until... That- the latter parts. That's um. There was one scene in particular that it's funny. I actually just realized saying that word that I actually haven't written down highlight scene. I guess we'll get to when we get to it. I'll decide on the spot. But one thing I really do like is when he's first on the radio with John McClane, and John McClane knows all these details. He knows all their names and what's going on. And one of the henchmen is freaking out, like, "How does he know? How does he know about?" It? And then Hans just shushes him because you're right. It's all about intimidating the people around him, mm-hmm. and hiding facts from people. It's one of the best... It's probably the best cat and mouse film you could, oh, yeah. like so you could ever ask for. And I think, unfortunately, these films, although I have not seen more than scenes from their predecessor films, they completely lose that element of in the Die Hard franchise. I'm pretty sure they just get to a point where they're just action set, more akin to Fast and Furious. They're more mm-hmm. action set pieces rather than um, John is sort of just answering the call of doing the right thing and he's just in a position where he needs to save his <laughs> wife that he still cares about but is sort of in a, a, t- a tenuous situation uh, mm. s- uh, with his wife, you know. Um, and I really like the time this film takes, the first 20 minutes, to really establish mm. its key There's players. actually a first act in this film. Yeah. <laughs> um, which makes the set pieces justified because his relationship with his wife is still... There's still love there, mm. but obviously this job has put a strain on their marriage, has put a strain on their family life. Um, they're both very prideful people to the point of being stubborn and kind of obnoxious. Yeah. And well, they both even, also got no shame in hiding that. Well, even John's called out when he's in the limo of like, oh, the reason he didn't come out is because he pretends it's his work. You know, I've got six months worth of work to do at the uh, the precinct, but it's like, no, you're just hiding out because you think your wife's going to crawl back to you. Mm. He gets called out on that immediately. And so, he doesn't deny it. Yeah. And... She, on the other hand, is changing her her name, mm. you know, and sort of, you know, like never looking like she's being unfaithful, but she's definitely as elected to be business orientated over family orientated, and and pushing to be um, pushed for this career in a search for her own self identity, mm. um, and which uh, she plays a pretty good role in this. You know, she doesn't not get a lack of screen time or. She definitely doesn't ever come off like a damsel. No, well, there is. There's a scene where she specifically negotiates with Hans about mm-hmm. the pregnant woman needing like a couch or a chair, or whatever. The reality is, it's well, the only person that Hans even like talks to in a manner that's respectful. And the reality of the situation is, she doesn't put um, McLean in further danger. It's actually the actions of other members of her team mm. that put. You know, she knows not to tell her the relation with John. She knows to keep that hidden. She knows not to. She knows it's John who's doing all this, but she's not going to give up the name. It's actually mm. her colleague that gives up the name and actually puts everyone by proximity in further danger. Well, that that's part of the cat and mouse game. Is that there's so many external elements that this <laughs> film takes the time to explore with the cops and the FBI and the deputy and the news channel especially, and like a lot of them screw up 
the cat and mouse game too. Yeah. Because John doesn't really screw up, like, ever in this film. It's everyone else that's sort of screwing him mm. up and Hanzo's more about him through this or they're on the same communications. Um, I, I thought it was that was all great. Yeah, and I, I think that there might be partial um, problems that I have with the film. Okay. That John is just too much of a Swiss Army person to just be this New York cop character. Like, there are occasionally times where he feels like he's one step ahead of these people that are meant to be these international criminals and terrorists, and sometimes that can feel a little like... Well, you're apparently just this, you know, everyday cop character who's very <laughs> smart, but always seems to have a leg up. But he does get enough of those kind of coincidental lucky escapes that help balance out that sometimes he might be more lucky than good. Yeah, um, I think I like think a event situation yeah. where he, you know, it's that whole timing thing if. He had been two steps to the left, he would be dead. Sort yeah. Of situation. Or... No, I think luck's a big part of it, but I, I mean that. I think that's part of what the point of the film is trying to do is is putting you in a situation of this everyman who, at this point in time, wasn't really common. I mean, I'll just quickly list off. Um... I think well, it comes back to emphasizing this is a cat and mouse game, and he is very much the mouse. Yeah, for sure. Well, he's the underdog. He's the guy that we relate to, mm. and because of that, we fear because like, well, we couldn't do, we couldn't take on these twelve or so you know, quote-unquote terrorist. And I, I think it. a lot of people took notice because it's, this film sees a shift in what we saw as the, the hero type in a film. So some of the people that were going to cast or offered the role to of John McClane was Schwarzenegger, Stallone, uh, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, James Kahn, and ironically, Paul Newman, who is in Tower Inferno. I thought that would have been a little too on the nose personally. Um, but it's like, these people aren't, necessarily who we understand John McClane to be for Bruce Willis's performance because he is a little more he's a bit valuable. Of a, he's a bit of a tosser too. You know, he's a bit of a yeah. he's a bit arrogant and and he's a bit um you know, in times he can be a little uh like kind of obnoxious. But yeah. he's obnoxious in the way that it's kind of he's there to stir up the bad guys. Well there were literally points where he's making jokes to himself and then they hear him and start running after him. That yeah. happens multiple times in the film where he's like making a comment or he's like yelling or something and then the terrorists spot him mm -hmm. because he keeps making noise. It's like, well, that, why do you keep screaming? Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I think I, that plays to his character. I think your list of people that you've just given off, I couldn't picture any of them mm. fitting that role bar maybe Harrison Ford. Right. Um... Either they were too old or they were just way too much of this action juggernaut character. Like, Stallone at this point had had mm. Rambo, Schwarzenegger had Predator, you know, and Terminator. So, yeah, at least those the characters. One, yeah. And also, not to, they're, 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 they're just audibly not very witty people. Like, no. you know, I love Rocky and I like watching Schwarzenegger, but do I think that they could give off the same level of witty. <coughs> Uh, the, 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 smugness, the, yeah. the smugness of this. No, they couldn't because they just, well, one, I think Schwarzenegger is, you know, he's a bodybuilder at the end of the day. I mean, there's no way you can imagine, you imagine him crawling around in vents, <laughs> making quips. I right, can't. Right. Um, and I think that's the scene that uh, like when you're listing all those actors, I'm putting in my head. 
You're running through them all, yeah, for and, sure. And it's like some of the most iconic lines in this film. You just couldn't imagine that delivered in a Stallone voice or a or a, or a Schwarzenegger voice. You know, it just wouldn't work. Um, but um, to yeah, Willis's credit, this is easily. I mean, it's a breakout role on yeah. top of easily being one of his most iconic um roles and yeah across his of, whole career yeah well it's astronomically entertaining really this this one he's he's pretty spot on what he needs to be in in this film but i definitely think he's complimented by rickman's performance who mm. in my opinion is definitely the strongest appearance in this this film and one of my one of the most entertaining villains to watch yeah because I... you legitimately feel at times that he's going to get away with it and what he's doing isn't necessarily wrong. And he does feel like a threatening presence. Okay. You mean in terms of like the motivation? Yeah. Like it you buy that he believes in what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. I think I think the cast all around, uh want more just the cast of characters rather. Um and it was like we're saying with the cat and mouse game and you know, like I said, I thought this film was a little too long at first. I don't think so anymore, but it is still, you know, two hours, twelve minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's ultimately a very straightforward action film about, you know, people breaking into a, a tower. So I like that a lot of the runtime is spread out across, you know, oh, let's follow, um, what's his name? Our Powell or Sergeant Our Powell, who obviously is a big conduit and help to John McClane mm-hmm. throughout. But we get to see his response and him having to deal with the sort of the, uh, was it the sergeant? Or it's like the deputy... Oh, the deputy commissioner, commissioner who yeah. is easily my least favourite character and is the most... One of the most frustrating characters written, I think. Because yeah. the relationship between those two and when the FBI shows up, he turns into this kind of rambling kid. Right, uh, he's trying to impress hey, the big boys. It, how's it going, guys? Like, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll help you. And it's like, no, you're a deputy commissioner. Dude, I think his well, portrayal yeah. was, is comical. It feels like it yeah. doesn't feel real. Well, I think you know, especially this time around watching it, I think I realized what they were doing is they were putting characters like that, and you're in the FBI clerks and the newscast people, and they were sort of showing how they're getting in the way of the true heroism that's happening. And it's like, who are the people in this film that are being portrayed by the heroes? Well, it's it's the street cop, it's the guy who's you know he's buying whatever at the store for his wife, who mm-hmm. has the tragic backstory of shooting a kid, he's the guy who's portrayed as the hero. You know, he's the guy that's thinking logically and being calm and trying to get these hostages saved. Unlike the guys in the helicopter, oh, we're going to lose a few hostages, I can live with that, that's fine. Yeah. So I think they're really splitting the line between the people who maybe have authority, but well, It's funny, they call him care. a cow, like they call McLean a cowboy, and mm. yet the way these guys are acting are more gun-ho cowboys than yeah. McLean is, who's way more methodical with his... Uh, actions. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that was a very intentional thing for them to lock these characters off. And and to your point, I, I read a bit of some of the 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 critics' thoughts on the film when the when it initially came out in the eighties and it got very mixed reviews and a lot of people were saying that even though um Alan Rickman is excellent in the film, uh that that guy in particular or that character was particularly frustrating. So yeah. you're sharing the exact same sentiments of the people that reviewed this film in nineteen eighty eight. So to your credit. <laughs> but I think that's the intention that we're going for. You want my for. update critics of all my films. <laughs> no, but like even the limo driver, for example, like he gets to be a hero as well. Yeah. Even if he's just driving up and giving a lift at the end, it's like, 
you know, he's being heroic in the sense that he's being a nice guy and he's just a relatable dude who used to drive a taxi. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they were going for in that in that sense. But that that's where I go. Um, what do you think of the action? Like the actual action scenes? Yeah, well enough. I mean Definitely it's not the same set piece stuff, but mm. I also don't want set piece stuff. Right. I want to I want the game of cat and mouse that this film has where it's it's sort of like it actually is a lot of like if you want to take a more contemporary example, it's the first taken film. Oh, okay. It also does very similar things where the action's great, but it's also kind of sporadically peppered and mm. it's very much the engagement of one person with another rather than um, you know, doing these big vehicle spots or, yeah. or you know, huge explosions. The, <coughs> the the detonation towards the latter part end of the film is such a big moment. It's we don't want this to go off. There's a huge mm. emphasis on that one explosion. Whereas if you look at a Fast and Furious film nowadays, explosions go off like fireworks. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and that's the difference. And I like so that so in turn that makes the action have more substance and more depth and more meaning and justification behind its actions, which, yeah. like I said, the the first Taken film definitely has that, and that's why it's such an entertaining film. Unfortunately, Liam Neeson now does every second film in an action set-piece <laughs> setting, so they lack the same substance. But, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I agree. And to your point, you talked about other Die Hard films, which you haven't really seen proper. No, but I've seen, like, scenes from right. and they definitely take the more Fast and Furious approach. The only one I've seen, so I watched Die Hard 4 as a kid. I don't know why, mm-hmm. I just had it on Blu-ray. I think mean, it was one of the first that's Blu-ray. Uh, with Avengers, I think, or something like that. Um, I think that's the third one. Oh, I think okay. this one was oh, what was it called? Um, Die Another Day or something. Yeah, it was Die something. Harder. Die Hard. It was something something dumb, I don't remember. But it, it was the fourth one. I think it was one of the first films I had on a Blu-ray. I was able to play on my PlayStation, so I think that's why I hadn't watched it. And from what I remember, it very much is more akin to the, you know, like a, a modern day sort of weaker live free Jason or Die Bourne. Hard. Ah, that's it. Live free or Die Hard. I think my like Blu-ray just has Die Hard Four in it or something like that. There's like a US subtitle. Or the Die Hard Two. Die title. Harder. Yeah, I actually really do want to watch Die Hard Two and Three, and I guess rewatch Four to to wrap it all up in that sense. Because, but but again, to the point, uh, the action in it. You're right. I think it's more cleverly peppered throughout and you're not necessarily enticed by the action as much as you're enticed by the the cat and mouse game it's a perfect way you put it between mm-hmm. between John and Hans and oh, they're both clever enough where they're both clever enough not to give each other information about themselves or you know when you when you hear that Hans can hear the police radio station he can hear John talking to the um to mm. to Powell or whatever it that the moment, the element of surprise that they could have, it doesn't last that long because they're just as clever as each other. So it's like we could have gone an hour of the film with John not realizing that he's spewing all this info yeah. to Hans, and they don't do that. He finds out very quickly. Oh, this channel's tapped, and we can all hear each other. So it's almost more interesting that all of the cards are on the table because they can't have conversations with each other unless all the other parties hear it as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the stuff that's more fascinating from a dramatic action standpoint you're following the characters and like oh how are they going to get out of this how they're going to get out of that um and again the fact that like it's the news outlet that tells hans like oh this is his wife she's in this room you can go and take her it's like it's all these little external elements that are revealing information it i don't know it really 
It's really great. It's well paced, yeah. It's yeah. well it's well tied together. Everyone's there for a reason, which I really like. Yes. That's another um, point, yeah. Jake, do you have anything else you'd like to add? I would love to talk about the editing specifically. Okay. Okay. And I think I mean it's kind of covered enough, but uh, the the thing, and I, I was trying to find the video where the guy was naming these. I couldn't remember the actual term, so I'm just going to name them myself. But mm-hmm. there are really two kinds of editing. And I think we talked about this in one of the films we mentioned earlier today, um, where there is sort of beat editing or beat-to-beat editing, which mm-hmm. is the every cut that's made in a this, in this singular scene. And then there's sort of the sequence editing, which is the scene-to-scene-to-scene, how they order the scenes. And um, I think you're right. In terms of the way it's paced, it really does show... Well, it, it plays this whole one night, very exhausting night for the characters, but it plays it out almost in real time, mm-hmm. where it is it is a long film. I don't necessarily think it's too long anymore, but it lets all those moments play out where the cops don't realise, or the cops don't come into play until like maybe an hour into the film. Like They yeah. really let all those beats play out. And I, I just want to say props to the editing... From an overall sequence standpoint, um, I think it really is excellent. You're right. It's a really well-paced film, and it, you really feel the night, how exhausting it is, and you feel that satisfaction at the end when that's all done. But um, do you have the name of the editor, actually? Um, oh, let me just have a gaze through the old letterboxes here. The old cheeky letterboxes. See if we can race you to the... <laughs> editor. The editing. One thing I noticed, actually, while we're doing that, I don't know how much thematic relevance it has. It kind of reminded me... This is what reminded me of The Towering Inferno a lot, where that's a film about, you know, humanity trying too hard to create something so big and so enormous that they can't control it Mm -hmm. when it all goes wrong, i.e. when the building lights and flames and people start dying and they can't control this natural thing they've created. There was a little bit of that in this film with the technology, how, you know, Bruce Willis walks in to, to log in his wife's name and he has to type it into a computer and... You know, there's sort of cameras everywhere and, and the there's like seven steps to the vault lock. I don't know if they necessarily did anything thematic with that, mm-hmm. like with the technological side of the building or how advances. It might just be showing, now that I think about it, it might just be showing how, like, importance or how, uh, how much money they have, I guess. You know, oh, this is a big Japanese corporation that has a lot of money and a lot of new technology implemented into the building. I guess that's what it was trying to say. So I've got two editors here, John F. Link and Frank J. Urosti. Okay. Congrats, boys. Um, also, Paul Gleason <laughs> was the deputy uh, police commissioner who was also the principal in The Breakfast Club. Oh, shit. That make Oh, my goodness, it is too. Hmm. Very good call. I didn't even put two and two together. He's playing the same character. <laughs> yeah. Don't mess with the bull, man. You'll get the horns. Yeah, exactly. I think um, that was one of our quotes, actually, for episode 85. There you go. But, um... Well, it's all, it's all coming back. It's all circling together. But um, I, I, I think the only other thing with the technological side, if you have anything to add to that, is the terrorists, um, even though they sort of use it against them, the technology to get into the building and lock it down so the cops can't come in, uh, they it also works against them in the sense that, well, they have to get through the vault, and that's a super overly complex thing to bypass the, the passcode of the vault and that. So, But I think that's all it's trying to say, is it's showing, mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a big building. Well, there have been multiple <laughs> films that have followed that sort of technology is the death of uh, riches and such. There have been a lot of action films that have yeah. done it not to the same effect or as, or as well, or 
or you know obviously back then it was considered way more of an original idea than what it would be now i mean skyscraper basically i can think of straight off the top oh, of god one. yeah exact same sort of type of film please watch towering inferno instead of skyscraper <laughs> <laughs> no worries jake well are you ready to move into our highlight scene sure let's do it all right for me my highlight scene was the first face-to-face interaction Damn between <laughs> uh, Gruber and uh, and McLean, um, mm. in which Gruber puts on an American accent and plays a civilian. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious, him doing the voice. And it was excellent. It was like, first off, shows Rickman's muscles, because he's a British man, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. Well, he's in Harry Potter, so... And Love Actually. Um, yeah, he is. Christmas Every- film. Everyone's watching Love Actually again. It's great. Yeah, it's that time of year. Yeah. Um, and which, yeah, that's really good and how it unfolds and it's the whole scene where they both get to... They, they both can't... Well, obviously, Gruber knows who McLean is and for us as the audience, it's us being like, it's him, he's the bad guy. Yeah. But McLean was well, he, one he, step ahead. Yep. Yeah. But there were just little clever things. A tribute to the, the editing in that scene, there are moments where McLean's actually looking in the environment to suss out if this person's mm. a good or a bad guy, where he looks to <coughs> the names on the next to the elevator board of, of people that work in the office and asks Gruber's yeah, name. Yeah, because that, that's not just the audience seeing that, because we don't need that to know he's saying a fake mm. name. You're right, it's from Bruce Willis's POV that we're learning. Which I loved. I thought that was like, oh, it's subtle enough and it just adds that level of intelligence to mm. that screen uh, that scene so that was my highlight scene yeah well you stole it from me like i said i didn't have one pre-planned um that would totally be it because you're right it's it's again a tribute to the screenwriting of this film where it's like it is a simple action film but they pepper in these layers of how much do they know about each other mm-hmm. so at this point in the story john doesn't know what hans looks like he knows his voice of course but not what he physically looks like um which makes that scene when because you have that wait a second moment and you're like wait he doesn't know what he looks like but of mm. course again there's multiple layers going and he does know who it is or at least he assumes and gives him the empty clipped gun all of that uh, I'm probably going to turn my highlight scene into a highlight uh, maybe character so uh, the limo driver I believe his name is Ar Argyle 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 that's it use the Y and turn it into an A and it's Argyle mm-hmm. I got you. And the, I mean, I just love their little interactions again, how he's sort of become a, a, a hero in his own right in it. But uh, the thing I found funny, this is something I noticed the first time around and again, was why is he listening to that same Stevie Wonder song over and over and over and over again? <laughs> Maybe it's the only Stevie Wonder song they could afford and they were trying to make a joke about a blind black man. I don't know if it was a, if the fact know. that he's oblivious to... Everything in the world around him, maybe. I don't oh, know. No, I don't know. There might be some really poorly tasted joke in there. I don't, I know. don't know. Well, the song's called Skeletons. I, I know it very well because it was in a GTA 5 trailer before it came out, and I just listened to it over and over again. But yeah, it's 57 minutes into the film, he's still listening to the song on repeat. Mm. And I was like, hang on a second. <laughs> this is going on a while. No uh, worries. Well, Die Hard yeah. is out in wide release. Jake, mm. is it on any streaming platforms? No, I checked a bunch. I couldn't find it. And what's interesting is that it is by 20th Century Fox, but the film's not on Disney Plus. So maybe it's a little tad too violent. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, interesting. Who cares? No worries. But speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what is new to streaming platforms and cinemas this Christmas week? Zeke, I'm very excited. Getting some great stuff this week. So, coming to Netflix, we've got The Midnight Sky, which sees George Clooney as a lone scientist in the Antarctic as he races to contact 
uh, yep, contact, not contract, a crew of astronauts returning home to a mysterious global catastrophe. They're not talking about COVID, are they? They're telling them to stay in the stay in the space. <laughs> uh, I don't know that. Anyway, that's pretty much the only thing coming to streaming bar one. We will mm. get to that soon. Uh, new in cinemas. So this one's exclusive to Hoyts. Keep that in mind. But it drops on Christmas Day. Wonder Woman 1984, which sees the superhero square off with Maxwell Lord and the Cheetah, a villainous who possesses superhuman strength and agility. See, we're getting an honest-to-God superhero movie this week. Feels all too long since that happened, Jake. Mm, but it could have gone just a little bit longer. Mm, <laughs> definitely could have. I might actually catch this because I do have a Hoyt's voucher. I too have a Hoyt's voucher. Maybe we can watch it if we're God, feeling up to it. I'm on Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> Hoyt's not playing anything else great. So no, that's true. It's like, But I just wanted to point that out. I think Luna... I thought about this because Luna didn't... They're not playing this, and might be a response to the HBO Max thing that's happening. So who knows? But Hoyt's is still playing it. I would love to see it on a big screen because we can here in WA. So uh, we're going to do that. A spy, or sorry, a call to spy, which sees Churchill at the beginning of World War II order his new spy agency SOE to recruit and train women as spies. Uh, now, this one came out, I think, last week, but I forgot to mention it. I will mention it now. Dreamland, which sees Finn Cole and Margot Robbie respectively play a teen bounty hunter and a seductive fugitive bank robber during the Great Depression. Uh, so this is one I heard the other day, and it was, oh, seems interesting. Intriguing. So, yeah. Uh, there are two more films that are getting advanced screenings from Boxing Day at Luna this week. Uh, the first one is Promising Young Woman. She's a young woman traumatized by a traumatic event in her past. Seek out vengeance against those who cross her path. This is one I'm really excited for. Apparently, this is a big Oscar contender. Might be best actress we're looking at for this film. Wowzers. And the other one, now this one, Zeke, I am very, very excited about. No Man Land sees Francis McDormand embark on a journey through the American West after losing everything during the recession. It is directed by Chloe Zhao. I cannot wait for that film. Yeah, getting a lot of positive buzz, that one. Oh, I'm excited. So that, that's this week, but it's it's not quite the entire week, Zeke. There's one other thing that comes out. That is out. true, now that you mm. think about it. Mm. Um, Jake, we are watching something that is new to streaming platforms this week and is our... I broke you! <laughs> you didn't You didn't say your... But we're not watching none of those this week. No, we're in the new century, so I'm going to switch it up. <laughs> oh, yeah, we were a century old now, aren't we? Exactly. <laughs> but, Jake, what are we watching? This week, or rather next week on the show, we're watching Soul. Music is all I think about. From the moment I wake up in the morning to the moment I fall asleep at night, I was born to play. It's my reason for living. Hello? What the... This weed, it counts off. There's a soul missing. Joe is a middle school band teacher whose life hasn't quite gone the way he expected. His true passion is jazz, and he's good. But when he travels to another realm to help someone find their passion, he soon discovers what it means to have a soul. Mm, I like the way he said, he's good, but... (laughs) Well, this one is directed by Pete Doctor of Pixar fame. He's directed Inside Out 
Up, which is my favourite Pixar film, and to tie it all back together, Monsters, Inc. There we go. That's perfect a circular I love that you've put that little extra effort in there, Jake. <laughs> um, this film uh, stars Jamie Foxx. Yeah. Um, so I'll be very intrigued to see this. is the latest Pixar film. We haven't done one since Onward. Well, to be fair, Zeke, we've actually done a lot of Pixar films on this. We've done Toy Story 4 and Onward. So since we've started this show, we've done every Pixar film that's that's been released. That is true. And we're continuing that trend <laughs> exactly. with our film next week. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Soul. Merry Christmas. <laughs>